interesting project about subcultures in Eastern Europe, of which legal culture could be considered an example or one of the analytical ways of, think subcul of, of thinking subcultures. Hence, I'm super grateful for your presence. So uh, people's experiences uh, before migrating influence what they do in countries where they settle. And in a similar vein, I could say that migrants' experiences of legality in their home country, uh, which the social legal scholars came to term the legal culture or the legal consciousness, significantly influence their relationship with the legal system in the host country. The empirical research demonstrates that the legal cultural baggage formulates some sort of a lens or a, an algorithm with which to interpret the unfamiliar and make sense of the new experiences. It is true that migrants do not necessarily reproduce the cultural values and attitudes to law which they brought with them from home. Nevertheless, they provide some sort of a compass. Uh, uh, the choices of lines of action continue to be influenced by values, norms, as well as the actual practices of legality that they internalized prior to their migration process. After the enlargement of the European Union in 2004, around a million Eastern Europeans arrived in the UK, with the Polish migrants constituting the largest and the most visible group. In this presentation and in the book, I look at the law, uh, role of the legal culture that the Polish migrants brought with them from home and employed in the process of social legal integration in the UK. That is the strategies and tactics they devised in order to follow, comply with, but also maneuver and perhaps keep clear of the law. Uh, in researching their relationship with the legal system, I focused primarily on migrants in the low wage, low skilled excellence of the labor market which invariably constituted the largest group of the Polish migrants. However, uh, seeing Polish migration to the UK only through the prism of this low-skilled low migration would be an oversimplification. What a reservation I need to make at the beginning of my presentation. So, what kind of law am I talking about? There was a particular legal puzzle that somewhat started my interest in this research. So in the so-called transition period, after the enlargement of the European Union between 2004 and 2011, the first enlargement of the European Union to the East, the access to the labor markets of the old EU member states for the migrant workers from the newly accessed member states on the basis of EU citizen and free movement were somewhat suspended. This happened uh, in a similar vein in the 2007 EU enlargement. So it meant basically that the old EU member states were allowed to derogate from the EU law that regulates the free movement of people and their rights to residence. They were allowed to regulate from the residence directive, the article 39 of the treaty establishing European Union, when on the basis of EU citizens, um, EU citizens are allowed to move between different countries in order to take up employment, as well as how this is regulated in the EU secondary legislation, so Articles 1 to 6 of the Regulation 16.12. In the void that the suspension of this European uh, law created, national laws, so laws of Austria, Germany, France, the UK, were put in place to regulate the access to the labor market and legal residence. 
So these national rules could have meant between anything between uh, no and full rights to free movement and residence. And many of the old EU member states, like Germany, France, and Austria, relied on the status quo from pre-enlargement period. The labor markets remained closed. One had to apply for a work permit. As a result, some of the citizens of the new EU member states who migrated to one of the old countries and took up a job there, they found themselves in a somewhat in a legal muddle. As EU citizens, they were right to move freely, reside um, as tourists or as um, uh, students or people of independent means. However, once they started working and did not apply for a work permit, for instance, uh, they were accessing the labor market outside the legal provisions currently in place. So, but in the UK, the access to the labor market was not limited in the sense that migrants did not have to apply for a work permit. In the UK on the 1st of May 2004, in compliance with the derogations stipulated in the accession treaty, free movement rights were generally extended to the migrants and their family members. However, this was done under the conditions specified in the British legislation. So the accession, Immigration Workers Registration Regulations 2004, the Social Security Habitual Residence Amendment Regulation and the Immigration European Economic Area and Accession Amendment Regulation 2004, for the, um, heuristically I would call them Accession Regulations 2004. And they bound together the access to the labor market need to registration of one's employment, the first regulation, as well as the conditions of legal residence and the access to social security. What these regulations meant in practice? Within the first month of taking up a job in the UK, a, a Polish migrant would need to register their employment in the Home Office under this workers' registration scheme. There was a fee for joining the scheme of £90 initially, but later on it went up. And one also had to send their passport or identity in order to register together with the application form. Migrants had to scan, stay within the scheme for 12 months, registered, upon which they were exempt from further registration and they gained equal access to the labour market and social security. I was in the UK during the transition period and I was working outside of doing my DFIL, so I also had to register. As you can see in the certificate in the background, the registration was connected with the particular employer. In other words, I or any other worker was registered as an employee of a company X, Y, and Z. Therefore, during the first 12 months of employment, if the worker changed the employer or found a different job, he or she had to inform the Home Office about this, using a special form, yet another form. So it, all in all, it was quite a bureaucratic process. If a migrant worker found a different job during the first 12 months, but did not inform the Home Office about it, all the months he or she accumulated on the registration, so required towards the final exemptions, were lost. And one had to start the registration process from the very beginning. What is interesting is that the law did not necessarily punish late registrations or a lack of registration. There was no fine or financial responsibility for lack of registration on the side of the migrant. The regulations themselves were quite ambiguous and they said, without registration, one may need to stop working. There was no scheme in place for enforcing the law either. 
So the analysis of this legal regime and its application in the UK somewhat demonstrates that the accession regulations were put in place as a compromise to monitor the scale of migration, primarily to limit migrants' access to the welfare support, but not to reduce the number of migrants. With no real coercive power and no power of punishment, all the law was left with was its power of exclusion. The exclusionary character of the law was particularly visible in the part of the accession regulations directly concerned with the social security. When migrants from the new EU member states failed to register their employment, they would become indefinitely excluded from the full participation in the welfare system. In this way, the law acted as a barrier to benefits and social support, and in such a way it was rather to exclude those who did not wish to comply with it, rather than to impose the rules in general. Perhaps, therefore, unsurprisingly, and according to conservative estimates, in 2007 in the UK, around 30% of the migrant workers worked without this registration. For a lack of a better term, legal scholars using the classic binary legal-illegal saw these migrants as legal residents but illegal workers. Suffice to say, many of those illegal workers received contracts, paid taxes and duly cleared their national insurance contributions. In the book, I try to demonstrate the social-legal position as more complex. The concept of semi-legality much better reflects the dynamics between the formal legal categories and the agency of migrants. The analytical usefulness of semi-legality stems from the fact that it successfully challenges the black and white binary division in the migration and law debate between legality and illegality. It denotes a range of migrant statuses, demonstrating that the line between legal and illegal is not a strict dichotomy, but rather a tiered and multifaceted relationship. The term therefore captures the various shades of grey that leave migrants in different types of legal ambiguity. It could be viewed as a multidimensional space where migrants' formal relationship with the state interacts with their various forms of agency. As an analytical construct, semi-legality is fuzzy at the edges, and so are the borders between legality and illegality. Paraphrasing Benton, these borders are difficult, if not impossible, to locate, and it is clear that not only migrants, but citizens themselves operate at times as if the borders did not exist. So semi-legality therefore comes as a useful heuristic device to differentiate between the various forms of statuses on the continuum, illegal and legal. However, when trying to address the broader question, why did the migrants not comply with the law or complied only partially, looking only at the structural legal conditions that migrants arrived into, so the complex and complicated rules and regulations, the bureaucratic applications and uneven law enforcement, this seems to deliver only part of the story or solves only part of the puzzle. In my research, I turned, therefore, to the migrants themselves in order to locate the missing puzzle. My empirical research encompassed uh, 60 in-depth interviews with migrants who arrived in the United Kingdom after the 2004, as well as a 12-month uh, participant observation in one of the legal NGOs that helped people to solve their legal, legal problems. And this uh, empirical evidence somewhat reveals that many migrants, drawing on their accustomed ways of dealing with the law, 
when faced with these bureaucratic accession regulations in the UK, displayed rather an ambivalent attitude towards the law, prioritizing any job over legal job, keeping clear of the law over engagement and compliance with state legal frameworks. They aimed at securing their existence and normality as they knew it, over meeting the requirements of legal residence. And this is the story uh, of Marian. For the purpose of identity protection, he is a composite character. So his experiences are therefore representative of many of those nameless migrants who, not without difficulties, were trying to find a job and adapt to the legal system in the UK. Marian came to the UK in March 2005 with the aim of finding a job. England and me, it was like a blind date. One thing I had was a room, a place to stay, which I arranged through a letting agency back in Poland. It was a room in London. I did not speak English. I had a few pounds in my pocket. There was one thing I knew, though. If you wanted to work in the UK, you, you would find work there. It was common sense. Since the labour market was open to Poles after 2004, there must have been lots of vacancies over there. So this quote also, I think, demonstrates the broader predicament which many of those Polish migrants arrived in the UK, they would arrive without networks, without contacts, and their main motivation would be to find a job. So Marian initially worked by an employment agency as a vegetable packer for a company that supplied one of the main UK supermarkets. In terms of the legal situation, he worked without home office registration, with weekly wages paid cash in hand. He was aware of this. In trying to make sense of his behavior in relation to the immigration status, he would say, to be honest, I worked there rather illegally. I realized it only after some time though, but one had to do something, one had to have money. I also wasn't asked by anybody about the insurance number or the home office registration. After three months, Marian had to leave this job as all the workers working on that particular shift were made redundant. And this is also, I think, demonstrative of the more broader precariousness that is connected with the flexible and the low-skilled labor, or migrant labor, in that sense, in the UK. At that time, he could speak a little English, and he looked for jobs via the job center. So it was only now where he would formally engage with representatives of the state, like the job center. So in November 2005, he found a job on a farm. There was no written contract proposed, but the farmer offered to pay him monthly. The farmer was uh, also told Marian that he would sort out the papers. After four weeks, however, when the payment was due, the farmer did not want to speak to any of his workers. I realized that there will be no contract, there will be no papers, and what is worse, there will be no payment. Marian reported this incident to the local police. He received an interpreter. His testimony was taken down and he was given a case number. However, as he revealed, nothing was done and the case went cold. In a Polish newspaper, Marian found an advertisement for a Polish lawyer who was operating on non-win, non-fee basis. The lawyer took on Marian's case. He wrote several letters to the farmer on Marian's behalf, requesting payment in accordance with the modified grievance procedure. As the farmer did not respond, the case went all the way to the employment tribunal, which awarded Marian the wages and the compensation. After the judgment of the employment tribunal, the farmer did pay the money. 
quite promptly, to be honest. So the conclusion is that you can stand and fight for your rights and be protected, even if you work not entirely legally here. It takes time, but you can do it. Soon afterwards, Marian found a job via an employment agency, which helped him to formalize his working situation by supporting his registration with this workers' registration scheme. Marian's life is now much less on the margins than it used to be. When I spoke to him last, he had his own construction company and he was doing quite well, at least until the crisis. Nevertheless, it took him three, three jobs and a case in front of the employment tribunal to finally legalize his employment and immigration status in the UK. His story relates a rather dramatic way of coming to terms with the law's instrumental capacities. Realizing the lost potential to solve problem was, for many of the Polish, initially semi-legal migrants, the first incentive that triggered thoughts and consideration of their own immigration status in the UK. As summarized by one of my interviewees, from my experience, the law becomes important when we actually get into some sort of a trouble and need help, need legal advice. When something is taken away from us, then we say, oh, law is this and that, law is unfair. But to comply with it like that, to think of law on an everyday basis, no. I think we first try to avoid the law. The legitimate question is, why does it happen? Why did migrants themselves choose to retain the semi-legal status, keep a low profile and avoid the interaction with the immigration law, arguably against their own interest? The lack of the registration delayed the process of inclusion into the welfare system and benefits support indefinitely while working in breach of the employment regulations undermined the otherwise protection they would be given as workers, protection from harassment, protection from discrimination. The analysis of the British environment, so the nature of these regulations and the enforcement, which I discussed at the beginning of the presentation and talk a bit more in the detail in the book, yes, contributes to address arriving an answer at this question. So unclear rules, inconsistent enforcement, employers turning blind eye to workers of unknown legality. This all does not inspire much confidence in conforming with the law in the first place, especially in the low-wage, low-skilled uh, labor market. When jobs come and go, sometimes at the whim of the employer. No? The legal environment, of course, matters, but migrants are not just passive recipients of the opportunity structures provided the state as the story of Marian suggested. They are, migrants could be considered as agents, and as agents, they do not operate in a vacuum either. Something else must be at work too. In other words, migrants arrive in the UK with certain values and attitudes to law, understandings of how the law operates and how it is enforced. And these experiences are not uniform, but constitute a luggage, a set of behaviors and toolkits that people can draw upon. I would therefore like to now turn to these soft legal cultural factors influencing Polish migrants' relationship with law in the UK. I present a selection of social expectations towards the law and its enforcement based on Polish migrants' daily experiences of law and legal institutions prior to their arrival in the United Kingdom. And these results are based on an analysis of eight focus groups conducted in Poland in 2008, as well as a representative survey of a thousand participants conducted under the auspices of Legal Cultures in Transition project, as well as my own, um, uh, my own data. Before presenting, or moving to the second part of the presentation, 
concerning the culture per se, I would like to make two methodological remarks regarding taking culture as a unit of analysis and of the dangers of cultural determinism when investigating the explanatory value behind cultural arguments. In this presentation, in the book, I argue that there is a need to consider culture, but of course in relation to other factors. Although it is the Polish legal culture that constitutes the main unit of analysis, I am far from assuming that all Polish migrants in the UK shared the same legal culture. While modern nation states, being relatively stable, defined and powerful, are the most obvious mechanisms capable of sustaining the conditions necessary for normative orientations to emerge, and be maintained through socialization within such institutions as the family, the education system, the legal institutions. Other formal and informal organizations with such capacities can be noted, like ethnic or national groups, local communities, social occupations and classes, religious groups. The methodological approach to culture adopted here acknowledges not only the diversity within the group itself, but also the plurality of culture a repertoire of various habits, attitudes, values and behaviours, rather than a determinist force. I define legal culture as part of the wider culture, as a specific configuration of values, attitudes and behaviour with respect to law, and how they are intertwined, what they produce and the complex interplay between them. The research is nevertheless underpinned by a general assumption that, while acknowledging the existence of subgroups, there are some common tendencies, patterns of behaviour and attitudes at the national level pertaining to the legal sphere that could be distinguished. The stress on configuration refers to how these values, attitudes and practices transcend individuals and create a distinguishable pattern. Certain repertoires are chosen more often than others and certain cultural tools are more frankly, uh, frequently invoked and relied upon. So what does the law mean? I pose this question to see how law is embedded within the larger uh, frameworks of social structure, with the aim of providing a thick description of law as the local knowledge. While Polish respondents agree that the law is important, they say without the law there would be a mayhem, the attribution of importance embedded in people's interpretations, seems to take into account multiple arguments. To the majority of my Polish respondents, law is seen as a collection of texts, paragraphs and written rules. This is because the law is synonymous with the black letter law, the law in the books. As can be seen from the table, for just over 43% of the respondents, the law corresponds to written laws, rules and regulations, Forwards by the, uh, forward, uh, followed by the concepts of order and discipline. In addition to its written and regulative qualities, the law as a text creates as an image of a special knowledge that can only be learned, understood and legislated by professionally trained people. Therefore, the law for the Polish respondents is a sphere reserved for qualified professionals. As expressed by the focus group participants, to me, law makes me think of paragraphs, ordinances. I'm not going to use that professional language because I have nothing to do with it, luckily. Or, I think the law should be made by professionals, not lay people. That's why we have universities and some kind of schools that should educate good lawyers who make good laws. What would be appropriate to ask? Uh, sorry, it would be appropriate to ask, what is good law? It's professional law. Or, I am not a lawyer. The law is created by educated people who mix things up so that I will never know what is it all about. 
The image of law as professional activity is another aspect of this law in the book's characteristic, making it a discipline within the specialization of lawyers and experts. The highly professional character of the law suggests a particular, almost exclusive place for it in society. Due to its expert origins, it figures as if on a pedestal. It may command respect, it may command dignity, it may command admiration. However, when asked about the use and purpose of law in everyday life, to be able to function in a social group, one has to observe certain rules, the rules accepted by society, not the ones we set for ourselves. When we follow our own sets of rules, it may not go along with the rules of the group. What emerges from this discussion is a dual image of law, based on at least two different sets of interpretations. There is an expectation of a socially desired and highly regarded law, certain rules, written codes and regulations, which are expected to regulate relationships and the organization of individuals. Yet, perhaps due to their or, uh, professional origins and character, the image of law appears to be in opposition, or at least external, to the rules we set for ourselves. This inevitably creates a tension when the rigid, written and complex rules are expected to be applied to flexible, ever-changing and interpretative areas such as everyday life. Perhaps unsurprisingly, such an exercise leads to confusion, a perceived ineffectiveness of law, and stimulates behavioral practices of we should move around in our daily life so as to keep clear of the law. It is important not to expose oneself to it, to me, law is important, but I wanted to say it's best not to have any dealings with it in everyday life. When I posed the question, what does the law mean? I did not receive responses that would link the concept of law with protection and refuge, with rights and freedoms, with general structure that could be flexibly interpreted. This view of law as strict rules and regulations, as an area reserved for professional specialists, reinforces the image of law as detached from everyday life. Not only due to its restrictive nature and complexity of written codes, but also due to the values and attitudes towards the legislators themselves. The image of unprofessional and potentially corrupt legislators who pass and apply the law depending on who is in power, in turn results in a general notion as law not commanding authority. The analysis of the relationship between the citizens and officials brings to the forefront the issues of trust, lack of trust, distrust in the reciprocal relations. Questions relating to legal competence of the legislators, whether the product of their work translates the interests of different social groups into legal categories, or on the contrary, conceals the privatization of public interest. The importance of trust has long been emphasized by social and political theorists from Locke de Tocqueville to Putnam and civil society theorists. In Galligan's opinion, the relationship of trust between the people and officials as one of the defining qualities of the modern legal order is necessary for the law to function in modern society and therefore has consequences for my analysis of the legal culture. The relationship between Polish people and their governors is best therefore described as a skeptical one. What could explain this ambiguity? The sense of inequality before the law. Polish respondents often doubt whether in Poland people were treated fairly and considered equal before the law. 
the law is not just equal uh, for everyone, so to say. Or, as a little chap, I get frustrated because we are daily inundated with messages that ordinary people have to comply with the law, whereas there are people who are above the law. The feelings and impressions of inequality before the law were mainly recalled when describing relations between citizens and state officials in a situation of unequal power bargaining. The state representatives were often perceived as people with higher economic status, affluence and position in society who would not hesitate to use it for their own benefit. I share the group's of opinion because the law protects people who hold important positions, who have money, and the ordinary citizens get kicked, get kicked onto a certain part of the body, excuse me. It ruins people. We cannot afford to hire some super great lawyers who will protect us against sanctions. And a member of parliament or a businessman is well connected and will wriggle out of it. We see new examples of it everyday life on television. Sadly, this is our Polish reality. I would say not necessarily only Polish reality. <coughs> But therefore, what concerns people in their everyday life, dealings with the law, is not necessarily the written rules, codes and regulations that are problematic, but the lack of authority and therefore their enforcement by the public officers, state officials and the Polish people themselves. The functioning of the local bureaucracy, the excessive red tape and formal requirements do not inspire much confidence in the quality of law and encourage dealings with local officers. Drawing upon the personal experiences with the social security officers in Poland, an owner of a small business, when I interviewed him in the UK, considered the state law in Poland to be too harsh, complicated, overloaded and inconsistently applied. He told me, I run my own business and I have problems with ZUS, which is the National Insurance Office. So silly sometimes. They change the law all the time. I would have to be on the phone all the time. They do not inform the public about this. And later on, he told me the story. Once I got ill and took a sick leave, and then I learned that I had two years, that two years before I had a contribution and a payment of 12 slotters or so, so equivalent to two and a half pounds. They didn't pay me for my sick leave. I had to go to court and appeal. So silly, isn't it? But nobody informed me that I had to pay this 12 slotters. The interest was growing. So I asked who the law is for. I would be satisfied if I got a simple letter earlier. Yours, this and this amount, please pay, and this is it. Such small, tiny things. In the light of the above experiences and attitudes towards the law, what are the consequences for the general law enforcement? Perhaps unsurprisingly, for the Polish respondents, when they talked about their relationship with law, their responses would often be intertwined with anecdotes, playful examples, or reasoning for maneuvering around the law. You know, there is this old saying, the law exists only to be tested. Or, I bet none of us have always lived by the book. Everybody breaks the law to some extent, even if you jaywalk. But the thing is, you cannot strictly live by the law. In many cases, you can get more things done if you break the law. This open, sometimes rather bold statements regarding the act of breaking the law for whatever purpose, observable in the Polish focus groups, point to a rather ambivalent relationship between Polish people and their law. They suggest that in Poland, although the image of law as the ideal regulator of relationships between people is highly regarded, but it is nevertheless quite disentangled from everyday life. This results in a gap 
a cognitive dissonance between what people expect of the law at the normative level and their daily experiences. Although divergence between what people think and what people do is a well-documented uh, paradox in social science, this gap between the normative expectations and experiences holds its purpose for the analysis of the law, of the importance of law in the Polish society. First, the normative gap between legal expectations and practical experiences has consequences for the binding force of law and legal norms in society. Bringing the discussions back to the UK, the phenomenon of the semi-legality and semi-compliance as revealed among the Polish post-2004 EU enlargement migrants suggests that in spite of the law being perceived as a paramount and a source of certain goods, it is not necessarily well integrated within the social fabric as an everyday life duty. Second, as the normative standards are not necessarily met by people's daily experiences of the law, this results in contrasting attitudes. I don't think about whether the law is necessary or not. In everyday life, we quite often go by quite different rules, not legal rules. Third, when asked about the popular associations with law um, among the Polish magazines in the UK, it was the image of the red color, red that often symbolizes <laughs> risks associated with law. Be careful, it can be dangerous, that prevailed among the interviewees. Engaging with the law for many of the Poles meant embarking on some rather murky waters, unforeseen due to complex rules and regulations, which often contradicted each other. As well, before the law's instrumental capacities were discovered to seek protection and access to justice in a given context and situations, all these attitudes, low expectations of the law, <coughs> low expectations of the equal treatment, and mixed experiences of how the state law officials operate, this produced strategies of law avoidance and keeping a low profile among the Polish people as a way of managing risks associated with the official law. Um, however, these attitudes and practices have not remained unchanged. Migrants' capacity to appropriate, adapt, and potentially to innovate upon received cultural schemas, values, and attitudes to law, and conditions of actions in accordance with, personal, uh, with their personal and collective ideas, interests, and commitments, allowed for alterations in the legal culture and adaptation of the culture to the new social legal environment. As a result, alongside the behavioral changes of changing status, legalizing one's stay, Polish migrants gradually assigned more important role to law. Even Marian, reflecting on his experiences with the employment tribunal, admitted, you can stand and fight for your rights and feel protected even if you work without documents. It takes time, but you can do it. The law might still be perceived quite distant, but more often than not, it was associated with the sense of comfort, security, and order. The legal culture is changing, and its change could best be characterized by the attribute of inertia. My analysis demonstrates that the nature of legal culture change, constituted by greater popularity of some cultural codes over others, still nevertheless employed in a polysemous way, is characterized by initial resistance, moderation, and intangibility. Although formal rules may change overnight as a result of political or judicial de decisions, informal constraints that are embodied in custom, tradition, and codes of conduct are much more impervious to uh, deliberate policies. As the example of the Polish post-2004 EU enlargement migrants in the UK demonstrates, 
in fashioning their responses to new laws or newly introduced institutions, compliance competes with pre-existing culturally mediated experiences of complicated and troublesome laws, strategies of bypassing the law or indifference towards it, and choices of free rights on the state due to the deeply entrenched distrust towards it. These cultural constraints not only connect the past with the present and the future, but also provide researchers with the key to explain the nature and character of the change in legal culture. Legal culture being the product of accumulative historical experience reflects the development of state institutions and popular attitudes towards law, but also enables certain predictability regarding the future development of a society, its response to socio-economic change, its compliance, non-compliance or semi-compliance with newly introduced institutions. And the ability to proactively use it can also influence other aspects of the so legal cultural epistemology. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Agnieszka. Um, I should say at the beginning, as Mikova already pointed out, I'm of course not an expert in social legal matters, and I think um, we were hoping for a more expert discussant tonight who then couldn't make it, which is why I'm here. But I'm of course glad to be here in particular because it's the beginning of um, um, or the first sort of public visibility of the new uh, of the program on modern Poland, which, which is great to have and it's, it's great to be um, involved with it. So since I'm not a lawyer, sociologist, an expert in sociological studies, I will keep my comments and questions very short because I'm pretty sure there are um, some among you who much better placed to ask questions or comment on on this um, on Agnieszka's paper, which for a layman with great interest in Poland like myself was uh, is of course um, a fascinating type of um, 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 research. And I came myself to this country in 1999 as a, um, if you like, um, um, as, a, as, an, as an EU migrant, and I've been observing uh, uh, my fellow Polish EU immigrants ever since they have been coming to this country in 2004. Um, so it's interesting to learn about that. Um, there's perhaps, perhaps um, if I could restrict myself to just two or three comments or questions. Um, one is of a wider methodological bend, as it were. So the term culture is, of course, one which we in the humanities also deal with. And we, by and large, deal with it as a comparative notion. So in order to learn about culture A, that really only comes into profile if we compare it to something. So um, is, there, is, is there any danger in just looking at the Polish migrants rather than in comparing it to, say, what native British po po population of the same social, social, social background would, would, would say about these matters, as it were? Um, that's a sort of very general methodological question, which which, which um, um, I'm interested in. And then just two or three smaller questions about um, uh, the, the particular case study which you, which you introduced, um, sort of this compound character of Marian who came in 2005. Um, there's two or three things which really struck me as, as interesting and quite contrary to what um, I tend to believe as common wisdom about um, about um, migration generally and more specifically about um, post-2004 accession state migration. One is, you mentioned that 
Marian as our compound figure came to the UK without an existing social network and it appears to me that I may be wrong so please correct me that migration studies always assumes that migration flows go with existing networks. Um, the other second sort of question concerning this case study which struck me as interesting is um, if the kind of components of legal culture which you mapped or sort of introduced in the second part um, skepticism uh, law something that is sort of out there um, something intimidating possibly dangerous it is then interesting that Marian after not being paid did go to the police how does that square as it were with, with, with these, with, these uh, uh, with, with what came out in the interviews as it were and the last uh, sort of um, more factual questions perhaps I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated that or I'm fascinated that the employment tri tribunal would have taken on this case without Marian having registered as an accession state worker Thank you to both of you. So I'm taking over as chair now? Brilliant. Well, I mean, I think this is a fascinating topic and indeed um, one that is ongoing. And one wonders whether, you know, new phases of semi-legality will happen now that different statuses of other migrants in this comparative perspective that Jan is speaking about, how do Poles see their, um, their own legality in the face of you know the, the Romanians and others so I mean I would have a, a number of questions to kind of update this and quite a, there quite a few many issues arise uh, but before I do that I just want to invite everyone to for comments and questions and um, Paul? Thank you very much. And pl please just introduce yeah. yourself. I'm Paul Betts. I teach here at the Center German History. I like the biographical element in both of your, um, uh, both your comments about uh, the fact that this is happening there. And I like the fact that you presented this as a kind of that they're already disillusioned liberals before they actually find their way to the UK, that that's already a sense there. But I guess, I guess my question is really about generations. Because in a sense, you're looking at a very a young group of migrants. But what about the older generation? There must be a few people. I'm thinking about them since the heritage of communism in terms of that's a particular engagement with law. And I say that because I, I've worked on East Germany for quite a bit. There were a range of studies about how, in a sense, former socialists try to adjust to a kind of West German takeover of liberal law. And they often describe the terms of temperature. They go from what they felt to be a very warm legal world in which they, they know to whom they were complaining in terms of getting things done, in terms of local officers, housing officers, a whole range of that culture <coughs> you're talking about, but then moving to a liberal world in which they felt was very cold, very bureaucratic, very distant, and that was a very difficult transition for them. So I'm wondering, do you have a sense in which there are generational differences, the people that come from Poland uh, that experience that, that, that communist legal culture, they have different attitudes when they come to the UK and they're expecting different things from the British legal culture than younger people who've only grown up in a much more liberal world in which those differences are not as stark. It's a broad question, so perhaps <coughs> can I will take one at a time. Perfect. Uh, so, uh, with the answer, uh, with the answer comments, uh, the first, the uh, the methodological um, 
methodological question. I uh, very much uh, appreciate this and I uh, very much see the uh, value of comparative research in the, in, the, in the book. Actually, the chapter where I present the Polish legal culture, I do it in comparison to the <coughs> British because the project allowed for, uh, uh, the project was uh, designed as comparative in nature. So we looked at the values and attitudes to law through the focus groups and surveys in Poland, in Bulgaria, in Norway, and in the UK. So that sort of enabled to see the nuances and subtle differences in how these different groups relate themselves to the law. And uh, just for the purpose of the presentation, I kept it out of the picture, but it is there, it is there in the book. And yes, uh, looking just at one group can lead to essentialization of culture and not being able to translate certain phenomena that maybe with a different shade, they actually appear elsewhere as well. And uh, that sort of uh, brings me to the second question. So about the composite characters. Why I decided to use this uh, quote of arrival bef uh, without networks? Because it was indeed something specific to this post-2004 EU, EU migration. I think, and, th and this was this, uh, I would say, the double-edged sword of the law. Because the immigration control no longer happened at the border, you would just show your identity card on the 2nd of May and you would be allowed straight in. And therefore, the first crucial phase of actually coming in and you know, going through the problems of, 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 of crossing the border and the initial adaptations, for many of the people, they thought, well, it doesn't concern me anymore, so why don't I try on my own? And there were numerous, numerous stories of uh, people finding out, okay, my friends are coming to the UK, we have a place in the car, would you like to join? And people making the decision in a split second, oh, no, split second would be too much, but the, in, in a half a day, packing their, packing their bags and going, because they know they could always come back. There would, there would be no problems with further admittance or with subsequent admittance in case they would not succeed. So the investment in building the network at the beginning was not, I mean, did, did not have to be there because they could always fall back and come, uh, come I mean, default and uh, come, back, come back home. And why did he go to the police? I asked him about this as well. I said, Listen, uh, like, you know, didn't, didn't you, weren't you scared that something can happen? Like, uh, um, you know, you were working without the registration. He said, no, but at this point, I felt already so, uh, <coughs> I felt like there was this grief and justice done to me. I lost my first job, which I know was not necessarily legal. And in the second one, he really promised to look at, to sort out the papers and everything. And then he didn't do it. I think it was just a tipping point that I reached, that I needed to seek help. And the employment tribunal, um, 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 said the decision in his favor because he was working less than one month. And the you had one month, so it was sort of this legal technicality that sort of saved him at the end. Because you, uh, one would have 30 days, the grace, grace period, so to say, for registration. And because his job on the farm took less than one month, or just one month, the uh, employment tribunal did not see it as working in breach of the employment regulation uh, of the accession regulations and did award him the, the compensation. 
So uh, Calypso's questions about, again, broadening the comparative perspective to Romanian and Bulgarians, I, I think it is a fascinating, it is a fascinating um, area to venture into. And uh, I currently have a student who will be looking at the impact of the restriction on the free <laughs> movement of labor, which one must uh, take into consideration with regard to Romanians and Bulgarians were much more severe than with regard to the uh, 10 EU member states that joined in 2004. There was basically no cap on the immigration. There was no, let's say, decision whether people can work or not to be made. But it was this bureaucratic process of registration or registration of slipping from the registration that created all this legal muddle. In case of the Romanian and Bulgarians, I think the, the restrictions on the access to the labor market were much more severe and actually uh, included probably labor market tests, whether there is enough shortage and or they were allowed to work only in certain uh, um, schemes like uh, agricultural, etc., etc. I mean, Romana, maybe you could say a bit more about this because I'm not necessarily updated. But... Uh, uh, now, uh, there's, interesting, uh, there's interesting point, what next? For the, for the Poles and the Eastern Europeans, uh, the accession regulations ceased in 2011. For the Romanians and Bulgarians, they ceased on the 1st of January 2014, with many more politicians and journalists at the airports than the actually migrants who arrive on the 1st of January. <coughs> but uh, what, are, what are the impacts or what, are, what, what is the symbolic force of law when the uh, registrations have been lifted? Or when the, when the restrictions have been lifted, mm, for many of the Poles, if they wanted to seek access to, um, for instance, job seeker allowance because they lost their job, after the restrictions have been lifted, the officers who would make a decision whether to allow them access to this benefit or not would look at the time during the transition and would say, were you registered then? So the law would still have sort of a niggling force at the background and still have repercussions, even though formally it is lifted. So, and also, I think especially with regard, to, no, with regard to the polls as well, uh, you join the EU, but you join the EU as sort of a second class of citizen because you don't have the equal access to the labor market, you don't have the equal access to welfare, you don't have the same mobility rights. And uh, in this day and age, especially with the tabloid propaganda in the, in the UK, this really can have symbolic impacts, even though the law no longer operates and the law no longer creates this difference between the different categories of the EU citizens. I mean, just this weekend, I think I've read in the papers about a Bulgarian um, doctor being told by um, her patient, are you sure you're Bulgarian? Bulgarians should work only on the farms. <laughs> and uh, this is, uh, this is uh, from the lay public, you could say um, everyday life people who somewhat are the recipients of what you know, Daily Mail and all these papers are saying. And that sort of creates a certain type of um, division, which uh, which I think takes much more to uh, to change than you know just a just a change in the law or the fact that the law no longer operates. And then um, the question about the generations, of course, it's a, it's a very it's a very good question and a very vital one, especially when one discusses such a broad topic as, as culture. 
And that's why I wanted to make this really specific reservations that my case study looks at this type of migrants and also who, and, and does not at all exhaust the topic of the legal culture in Poland because there will be generational change. There might also be gender that influences how differently men and women, the law impacts on, on men and women, how differently they build a relationship with it. Uh, but also, yes, this heritage of socialism and the heritage of socialism was also a, a, my main uh, something that really triggered my interest in looking at the Polish migrants. I mean, uh, being uh, educated in a Polish academia in sociology department, the idea of homo sovieticus as the sort of nangling mentality behind uh, many uh, um, people from the elder generations everyday actions was something that was um, constantly being um, yeah, being investigated in works like Stampka or Kubiak and others. And then uh, uh, one arrives in the UK and speaks to mainly this single uh, people in their 30s, sometimes early 40s. And uh, I would not say that these are reproduced, not at all, but I would say that to a certain residual form they would still be, uh, these values and attitudes would still be present. The, the fact that uh, they were socialized within, the, socialized within their families before they arrived here and maybe being told, you know, okay, your in your first job, you don't necessarily need the contract. In your first job, you will get paid cash in hand. You, you cross the border and you think it's normal if your employer does not necessarily offer you this. I'm sorry if it, if it does. Um, Jonathan. Yeah, I, my, my original question was going to be very much, uh, has already been answered by Agnieszka on the sort of comparative side of you know, Romania and Bulgaria, because it's precisely, and I have to say, I was extremely impressed having spent time working on EU enlargement. Uh, I had not appreciated the post-accession complexity even in the so-called free access countries like like the UK, uh, but I do think it, it it would be very it it would be particularly interesting to look. You've pointed to some of the sort of residual impact of the um, of the legislation, even though it's no longer applicable. And I think it would be very interesting to do uh, this wider study on looking at the uh, comparative experiences of the Romanian Bulgarians as opposed to Poles or just the Romanians, I mean, it doesn't make much odds really. Um, uh, during the seven year muddle mm -hmm. uh, and after the seven year muddle, mm -hmm. uh, if you like, 1st of January 2014 in the case of uh, uh, Romania. Uh, 2012 in the case of, uh, of, of Poland, mm -hmm. because uh, uh, it, 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 what the media has got it wrong, as mm -hmm. you pointed out, on, on, on the impact of the first January 2014. It's, it, it has very it had very limited impact. Uh, I, so I don't really have a question, but I think it's a it, 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 it's an issue which is well worth pursuing further. No, I totally, totally agree with your comment. 
I, I think it's a, it's a, it is a very valuable uh, point of comparison and really one that just waits to be to be explored. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. Hello, my name is Matthias. I'm a visiting researcher from Germany, and I'm working at the business school. So I'm uh, neither a lawyer nor a sociologist, but um, yeah, nevertheless, I'm interested in this topic. And um, yeah, and you said that uh, migrants from Poland who came to Britain that they changed their attitudes uh, with time uh, towards the, the British law, and they changed their legal culture. And uh, what is interesting for me, or what would be interesting, is um, do you think, um, first of all, um, if there is any chance that those people will go back to Poland? And secondly, if they go back, will they then again change their attitude and they will switch to this to this Polish model according to this um, to this idea you have to cheat the state otherwise it will cheat you or will they bring um, this new um, well attitude uh, towards institutions mm -hmm. from Britain to Poland and maybe they there's there are a chance for Poland to to, to change the mentality of the people Calypso, how would you like to? No, uh, okay, well, we can take two questions. Yeah. Um, I was just wondering if you have any data in the establishment of uh, Polish migrant uh, been at this university since 2000, so predating the enlargement. Um, I was wondering if you have any data um, or have done any research on, say, what the attitudes are today, say, Polish migrants who come to Britain in 2014, whether those attitudes are any different, if the culture that they bring. Um, with them to Britain are any different from that in 2004, and what is that a function of? I mean, familiarity with Britain, um, is it a different uh, legal culture in Poland that's being established, either through organization or, um, or, or generally through other um, factors? And the second question, um, just briefly, how do you control for this idea of, um, if people come with this idea of, of being unequal um, in front of law, in front of the, the law, um, to what extent is that, say, influenced by um, the idea that when, well, when you're Polish, you're competing with, um, with, with Brits when you come here, um, and you have to stand in front of the court and you bring the claims. Um, how much is that influenced by the idea that you may not be equal because you are foreign? I mean, that's, a, that's an idea that might be bringing with them. Um, can you account for that in, in your model? Thank you very much. I think the, uh, your question and your first question like really nicely speak to each other, mainly due to the fact that I think uh, I would respond to you saying that it's it's a uh, uh, thinking about migrants uh, going um, staying in a in a host country and then returning back and then what happens to them is this a uh, very uh, familiar notion within the migration and development literature. So migrants as agents of social change in the origin countries, those who send remittances, not only the financial remittances that help their families to support themselves, but also as those who send certain values and attitudes of how differently a world could be conceived, etc. But at the same time, I must, uh, I must admit and must be aware of the limitations of my own research. The data I presented was a somewhat a snapshot of a legal culture. So how, how people were thinking about the law when the data was collected. And it's not necessarily said that those migrants who will be returning to Poland, they will be returning to the same country that they left, that they migrated from in 2004. Because under the European influences, 
I mean, and other factors such as the economic crisis, etc. People do change, and the culture does change. I mean, somebody once said, uh, "Important scholar on culture." That well, basically, what could be said about culture is that it's changing. That's the only perhaps certain thing that could be said about this. So. Uh, in doing such a qualitative and nuanced research, it's sort of uh, difficult to say uh, what has stayed the same and what has changed. Following my migrants, so uh, talking about my sample of those migrants who were in the UK, when I sort of talked to them at the beginning and then a little bit later and a little bit later, once they registered, and as I said in the present, once they sort of discovered the instrumental capacities behind the law. So the fact that the law is not only something that, you know, you should keep a low profile from or you should avoid, but something that you can employ in order to realize your particular interests, something that can protect you, something that can um, something that can help you when you, for instance, lose a job of, or have a dispute with an employer, that with step by step or uh, so coming to terms with law's instrumental capacities sort of influenced um, different attitudes. Because once people behave in a certain fashion, that becomes a sort of uh, uh, um, an experience which they can draw on in order to think differently about things. So how people behave influence what do they, what are the attitudes, and the other way around, the attitudes then um, influence what they behave, what is first and what is second. It's a bit of this uh, chicken and egg discussion, but uh, nevertheless, there is a clear relationship between behavior and attitudes, and they uh, remain in reference and in relation to each other. So um, just to bring this <laughs> a bit uh, yeah, muddled um, response probably to, 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 to a conclusion, I wanted to say that um, f for me it's difficult to say whether the people who return to Poland will be the agents of change, because many of them do either do not return to Poland or go elsewhere, or do not cannot find themselves again back in Poland because it did change since they left. But at the same time, following this group of my respondents here, I could say that their initial distrust towards the law and ideas of keeping clear of the law with time were sort of replaced. Okay, well, the law is still quite distant, but at the same time, it can help me. If I'm in a trouble, it can solve my problem. And um, with uh, maybe with time, by strategies of actually going to law in case of legal problems. And uh, uh, about the... The control uh, for the for an equal uh, an equal relationship uh, no an equal the, the feeling of being unequal before the law. I think it's also a predicament characteristic for uh, other migrant groups. I mean, after I finished the book, I moved to a project that looked at third country nationals in the EU. We looked at uh, um, Brazilians, Moroccans, and Ukrainians in comparative perspective in four European countries, Norway, Netherlands, Portugal, and the UK. And that sort of demonstrated that these conditions of inequality with uh, regards to the law uh, were a shared predicament across various ethnic groups. And there maybe you know, the culture <laughs> 
is not such a good explanatory uh, or does not have such a good explanatory value anymore, but more the same social legal predicament in which you find yourself in the in a host country. So in that case, yes, I would completely agree. And can I just follow up a, a, a bit uh, with some more questions and maybe... I have some questions too. Mm -hmm. So maybe we'll take the prerogative of the chairs, as it were, <laughs> and, and follow up a bit. Because I, I thought, you know, these were all... We've been pushing you on the empirical questions and what you found with time and attitudes, etc. But I'm sort of coming back to your title, Social Legal inter Integration. And from what I understand, and you just stated this again, you are really at the interaction of migration studies or even diaspora studies and social legal studies. But of course, another overlapping circle in this story is the single market, European law. And in fact, if you say, if you said, you know, legal integration or, you know, in the EU, that, that is a whole other set of ideas and things we've studied. And indeed, you talk about the home culture and the, and the, and the host culture. And um, the whole point of the single market or free movement of people is that they carry with them alongside an attitude to the law, their own rules. That's, that's what happens when you have mutual recognition of law in the EU is that host, home country laws and rules are carried in your shoulder like a tortoise, you know, carrying their house. People go around Europe and carry their own rules on their shoulder. Now you add that these rules themselves are embedded into a culture. And that's true if you're a consumer, a worker, a firm, etc. And, and, and so part of, so I'm kind of thinking, well, you know, get, are some of the same paradigms applicable? So the big one is extraterritoriality of, of law, generally speaking, and of attitude to law and what it, what it does. And, and, and there are a number of questions that follow when you think in terms of extraterritory. So one is, are there compatibility thresholds? So you have one binary in this book, the Britain, Poland. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, could you build a generic theories with various, where it it's always about binaries, but they end up interacting. But there, are there different kind of compatibility or lack of comp compatibility between attitudes to law between in different binomes in, say, Europe, staying in, in, in Europe? Uh, but secondly, you know, the, this whole, and following on this, this whole question of agents of change and coming back home. So, of course, in legal integration, we always speak of uh, regulatory, regulatory or legal in, uh, competition and whether it leads to race to the bottom of, or race to the top <laughs> when laws interact, as it were, and compete with one another. So one more gen general way of asking you the question is whether... You know, whether there's a kind of race to the top, whether the good attitude to law, seeing you, and that's now normatively biased, but I think it underpins, although not always explicitly, a lot of what you say is that, you know, in the Anglo tradition, we have a sense of law, as you write in the book, laws, freedom, laws, warrant against arbitrary power of the state, uh, as opposed to law constraining the individual ser serving powerful interests. So the question becomes, you know, what are the mechanisms by which this kind of rather benevolent and positive competition between legal cultures occur both in the in the host country first and then back in the home country are there you know dynamics there now that's interesting also and that has to do with this whole question of learning with Stefan was putting you know the kind of Bayesian updating 
that you have when laws interact like this. So the, what does, is that true for culture too? And ultimately, what does this mean for the way, now totally prescriptively I would ask, you know, and this is just some questions that occur to me, but you know, what does it mean for a very pro, uh, difficult question, which is the Copenhagen criteria in the context of enlargement, the fact that the rule of law and respect for the rule of law is becoming uh, has been formally, but is becoming much more deeply a criterion for enlargement. Mm -hmm. And and of course, the idea that many of us have been you know, thinking about, which is that, of course, the rule of law is not the law in the books. It's mm -hmm. not just a checklist, but it is an attitude. Mm -hmm. And, you know, how can the EU have as a criterion for entry an attitude? Mm -hmm. You know, is it going to pull people in, in, you know, former Yugoslavia and Serbia or elsewhere? Uh, and what what can we learn from your story in the way in which we're going to manage this really sensitive question of assessing, you know, candidate countries' attitude to the rule of law? Or should we just trust that once they're in, they'll go through, you know, the learning processes that you describe? And in any case, you know, isn't it very imperialist at the end of the day and very much a reflection of asymmetric normative power that we kind of expect that there's a story there that, ah, you know, these countries that are backward in their attitude to law, you know, will learn the right way and then go back and do the right thing. Sorry, I'm throwing a lot of questions at you, but... <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's, it's fascinating. It's uh, like, no, it, it, it really is like a, to be pushed a little bit uh, further on this uh, more theoretical questions, I would say. And... Uh, the way I, I think of uh, integration in my book is uh, in a in a non non normative way. So I'm not saying that the Polish migrants arriving in the UK have to do this and this and that in order to be integrated. I see it more as building a relationship, which a thick description of what this relationship is about is the first step towards towards seeing yeah. What, what what are we dealing what what are we really dealing with and at the same time the questions about the race to the top and the race to the bottom like uh, many of those migrants who who would arrive here and who would come across an employer who would tell them well i think there was there was even a, a bbc panorama or a feature on it on monday uh, that uh, somebody will come to those migrants who would gather for instance around the diy shop waiting for jobs and uh, a guy will come and say okay I need five workers but I cannot pay you according to the national minimum wage because you know I can pay you less will you still come and do the job and yes they will go and it's I, I, I don't think so it's that much uh, then becomes a matter uh, of culture but more as a type of um, I don't know um, a broader um, way of finding yourself in this you know flexible labor market and how do you respond to it? I think a part of it could be explained by culture, but as I said, it's only a puzzle. And I think there are also other um, other um, uh, other perspectives that we could shed light on why this situation is happening, or or why is it happening in this way and not and not in the other. Uh, about the. Uh, yes, so I, so what I wanted to say is that uh, not that the uh, 
the Brits have a civilized idea of what the law is because many of them do not, absolutely, and that the, the Poles have to learn from them, not at all. I'm, I, I, I would not approach integration in such a And I wasn't norm- saying that, implying that you had that attitude, but there is that attitude the, out there. There is this idea of, yes, of certain, I don't know, you even mentioned backwardness, etc., which I, I was trying to challenge in the book by approaching integration in a non-normative way and seeing, you know, what is out there, what's the empirical reality that is telling me, and then uh, how do these people interact in these conditions that they that they found themselves in, and that requires the cha- I think changes and adaptations on on both sides or or or, or all the players. Now about this rule of law, that's actually a that's actually a. a um, a very, very thought-provoking, thought-provoking idea. Because yes, indeed, um, um, on on Monday I was on a lecture that sort of looked at um, global indicators as a way of enforcing human rights. Human rights. So the idea is that the the law or the human rights are no longer about. Uh, ideas of justice and fairness, but about countries ranking uh, or ranking countries according to how well they score in the corruption index, how well they score in the rule of law index, etc. And uh, uh, this is sort of um, this is a um, uh, this sort of shades us away from the idea of 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 what the law is, and then be- becomes a type of uh, I don't know a list of countries ranked as. Yes, we do have the human rights. No, you don't have the human rights. You maybe have a, uh, you maybe have the human rights, rather than giving power to local communities in order to uh, to mobilize around the idea of human rights and go to the court and appeal uh, against certain situations or certain grievances that they might have. And I think a similar similar trend is observable in this human uh, rule of law indicators that. Uh, the scholars who are creating or were involved in creating it. I remember having this discussion with Martin Krieger about why do we why do we have this these indicators that they do not tell us really much and they are about really ticking boxes or using uh, proxies uh, as um, in order to feed in uh, fit, fit in the the data that are missing etc etc and um, maybe indeed. Uh, an attitude, maybe indeed it's a matter of attitudes and values, but then how to sort of normalize it in a way that they become comparative and uh, therefore um, therefore employed in this process of, I don't know, deciding about but um, the, the rule of law or not. Uh, well, to, to, to me, it goes back to this balance, I think, between the qualitative and quantitative in social science how we employ these two and how do they speak to each other. Mm. I'm not, I'm, I'm, the, the quantitative of course sheds light on a lot of what is happening on the ground and it's a way of systematizing the reality around us. But at the same time, without us being critical behind the numbers and how they've been sourced and what, did, uh, what are the actual numbers, of, no, how these numbers were gathered, etc. And without bringing a little bit more, maybe uh, nuanced, qualitative narrative, um, these numbers can become quite, yeah, like you said, not really telling much. 
Uh, but at the same time, I think there is a problem of going just towards qualitative and just having this, you know, localized views of what is here and what is here, what is there, which then sort of uh, mm, does not render themselves that well to a meaningful comparison or to policy decisions. It's attention. Yeah. Um, Agnieszka, I have a, a very factual question, actually. Uh, um, I'm just curious about uh, the pool of your interviewers. So how uniformal or heterogeneous or, on the other hand, um, yeah, uniformal, heterogeneous and representative? These people were in terms of, in terms of the occupation, in terms of the social background, in terms of, uh, which is obviously a very, very, very important command of English, and then also the fact, you know, the 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 the, the site of previous residence, because it tends to matter actually when you are looking at where these people are coming from, in different parts of Poland. So there is this question regarding the interviewees. Um, and the second, and the second, and the second question, um, I know that you've essentially focused, you know, your 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 project, your research on the UK, but I would be actually interested, you know, to learn about your observations regarding the Irish case, um, and in this respect, uh, perhaps the religious factor, the belief factor, the fact that we essentially have the people coming from the, um, um, the you know, nearly. Uh, uh, Catholic homogeneous society basically ending up basically going to Ireland. I don't know the answer, but essentially, you know, I was hoping that perhaps you would have something to say about this. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So the question about uh, the interviews. And so I'm a qualitative researcher. I cannot claim at any point that my research is representative of all the migrants who arrived in the UK. And I think I made this reservation at the beginning of my presentation. Nevertheless, in approaching my respondents, I was trying to be as diverse as possible. So in my sample, you will find people who, with tertiary education, those who came just with secondary education, those in the 20 to 30s age bracket, but also uh, some of them who were who are slightly older. I think my oldest respondent was around 53, 54. Um, uh, so that's as far as the interviews is concerned. I think I was a little bit more, um, my, observe, my participant observation in that legal NGO was a little bit more representative because uh, basically I was first there as um, interpreter. They needed somebody who would be able to interpret on behalf of the Polish clients. And later on, they trained me in employment law. So I become, uh, I became the advisor and started taking on some cases uh, about, uh, uh, yes, when there were disputes with employers, either via the grievance procedure or the modified grievance procedure. And that was also quite a, a varied spread of people. Uh, to be honest with you, I would say there were more men than than women who decided to seek help and seek legal advice, but maybe because they felt themselves as breadwinners, as those who really have to face up to the problem and, and do something about this. Uh, about the Irish case, um, I must I must really admit that I haven't done this comparison, but I know uh, some of my colleagues who who were f uh, focusing on the adaptation or the integration of Polish migrants in Ireland. So I'll be happy to point you to okay. their directions. Okay. Maybe we can ask Jan if you want to add and comment on what you've heard too. 
I would ask a last question to Anissa before you Sure. Um, I would like to go back to the comparative uh, aspect of your research. So there were 60 respondents from each of these groups, is it right? Mm -hmm. Is that right? So, no. So the, the 60 respondents were the interviews I conducted with the Polish migrants. And as far as the Legal Culture Project was concerned, they were uh, six to eight focus groups in each of the countries. So each of the focus group would be between seven and eight participants. And a thousand people, so thousand and representative survey uh, mm -hmm. in each of these countries. I see, I see. And what is the implication of this kind of study in qualitative research in the social sciences? Because we have this wider discussion, which is of course very interesting and probably important, important as well. Um, Sort of what is the claim what one shows with this kind of research, with this, with this kind of, is it supposed to um, be a footnote to quantitative research that's been carried out on EU migration? What is sort of the, the claim what it delivers in terms of knowledge, in terms of input into policy decisions and to our understanding of migration, legal cultures, perhaps huge question of that kind to um, run things up. From the bottom of my heart, yes. I would like to see a little bit more than a footnote to quantitative <laughs> research. Right. Yeah, I was going to say that it's the main body of the text, <laughs> it's, it's not a footnote at all. But, but, at, the, but at the same time, um, uh, I, I think the qualitative data delivers um, a really rich picture of what is happening on the ground, which, you know, presenting it always comes with um, reservations, okay, this is my sample, and let's say uh, this part of it is representative, but this part of it is purposeful. Therefore, I need to be really, well, not humble, but realistic about what this rich polysemous way of uh, approaching the culture can tell you in a, in, a, in, a, in a bigger scheme of things, which I think the, um, many of the quantitative scholars do not, do not have because the idea of numbers is that they are neutral. And that, that's something I, as a qualitative scholar, would like to challenge, that the, the numbers are not necessarily neutral, that they come uh, the, the, from certain ways of, of it being sampled, that they come... I mean, every data is imperfect, ultimately. And I think that... Um, um, I think realizing these imperfections, but at the same time, uh, uh, recognizing the, the richness and the actual information that is, is contained between them. And then I think putting the qualitative and quantitative, I mean, there, there are lots of big projects now that are mixed methods data. So using the qualitative in order to account for the gaps in the quantitative data to give a slightly richer, more nuanced picture be behind the numbers, but at the same time using the quantitative in order to generalize this very rich narratives and descriptions that are out there behind uh, that guides uh, qual qualitative scholars. So triangulating these two, using one to account for the weaknesses of the other and bringing out the richness of the other, I think um, could be a way forward in comparative research. Well, on these very, very wise words, and I, I'm sure you know everyone wants to continue the discussion, but our audience has dwindled a bit, and it is getting late, and we've had a fascinating conversation on a book, which I haven't had the chance of reading yet, but I think 
we can really recommend and, and indeed put on our website, European Center, the program. I'll let Mikolai have the last word. But I, um, I think these are really important, both in and of itself, in, the, in an area which really underpins European integration, as well as the whole very highly politicized debate. So bringing some sanity to this debate in the bigger, bigger public sphere is key but also for the field, as a field of inquiry and how we do things. Of course, the law is text and it's words. And um, I mean, all of us who are committed to triangulating and to you know, the core of qualitative research you know, will support what you just said. Uh, and at the end of the day, you're studying behaviors, attitude, culture. I mean, this is all very difficult to pin down. And you've done it in a very systematic and fascinating fashion. And it sounds to me like your um, ongoing research project is going to be super promising. So you have to promise to come back and tell <laughs> us more for the next phase. But in the meanwhile, I, I'd like you know, all of us to thank you thank and you. thank Jan for your discussion. And above all, thank Mikolai for bringing a, such a wonderful program to the European Center, bringing all of us together. And we're looking forward to further conversations. Thank you. Thank you.